Hey, you guys. Good morning. You guys are a little rowdier than the first service. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Susie Bates. I'm one of the pastors here at Pulpit Rock. And today we are wrapping up our Table Manners series. We've talked each week about the importance of finding healthy ways to sit at the table together with others who have different values and motives than we do. And our hope is that you can see yourself in one of these biblical figures. Um, and honestly, I think we're all going to see a little bit of ourselves in each of these. Uh, but I think there's probably one character that kind of really just speaks to you. I, I hope that's the case. Um, where are my Marthas at this morning? You're out there. All right. All right. Who is relating to Peter? Anyone? There's a few. Okay. All right. How about, um, how about Paul? Any Pauls? Good deal. Last week we had Nicodemus. Are any Nicodemuses out there? That's great. Good job. Well, I am excited to bring the final character to the table this morning. The table is now full. Um, I love this character, and, and I hope that you can kind of like go back to being a kid again. Um, if you're anything like me, you heard about this character for the first time as a child. Um, so today we're going to talk about Jonah. There have already been jokes made about the color of his chair being sea foam. <laughs> but <laughs> whether you're meeting him for the first time today or saying hello again to a childhood friend, um, let's talk about Jonah this morning. Jonah is introduced to us in the Old Testament right alongside the other Old Testament prophets, but Jonah's book is completely different from the others in that Jonah's book tells the story of the prophet and doesn't focus on just his prophecies. The book of Jonah is a narrative. It reads like a story. It's one of many reasons it's such a perfect fit in our kids' environments. Jonah's name means dove, which is a symbol for peace. And he was the only Old Testament prophet to attempt to run from God. Many scholars refer to Jonah as the reluctant prophet. Uh, and I'm excited to be teaching on him today because I can tell you there's not a better way to describe me up here than reluctant, <laughs> especially doing exactly what I'm doing right now. I am always reluctant and uncomfortable up here, um, and I try to get laughs to like make it feel a little better, but um, I can relate so much to Jonah. I run from a lot of things. I run from my feelings. They're actually hard for me to put my finger on, and so... That's frustrating, and running from them is just a little easier. I run from God all the time. He's always asking me to do things that I think are really hard, like learn about myself and practice self-awareness and preaching, for instance. Um, I run from pretty much anything that rocks the boat. I like things to be chill and predictable, and I want everyone to be cool with everyone else and everything that's going on around us. And I especially, I just want everyone to be cool with me. 
Hello, I am Susie, and I am an Enneagram 9. Nines are referred to as the peacemaker. We can easily see everyone's point of view, and we really want to make everyone around us feel seen and included. Because one of our healthy strengths is empathy, our hearts go out to anyone who's on the fringe. But these high levels of empathy can also lead us to forget ourselves because we're always just trying to see the world through others' eyes. We hate conflict, and when we're unhealthy, we'll do almost anything to avoid it. It's funny, when I first began to realize, like, I think this is me, my husband's immediately suspicious response was, I don't know that you're a peacemaker. To which I responded to my husband of 18 years with my favorite thing to say to him, which is, you don't know me. <laughs> Here's the thing. I have a strong eight wing, meaning I have a lot of Deborah in me. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Thomas introduced Deborah to the table, and he highlighted her draw towards action and justice. And my poor husband probably takes the brunt of that very special side of me. Um, there's actually a nickname given to people like me who are very much like Jonah with a little bit of Deborah sprinkled in there. We are endearingly referred to as the bear. I don't really feel like that's a very accurate bear picture. I think there's probably a better one, honestly. There we go. See? I'm cute and cuddly. <laughs> Whether you've been here for this entire series or not, just know that's a complicated mashup, a Jonah with a Deborah wing, because those two people are so very different. Um, we're all complicated in our own quirky ways. Jonah was too. I love his story, and I see so much of myself in him. And if we're loosely basing these historical figures on Enneagram types, I think Jonah makes a really good nine. The story begins in Jonah chapter 1. You can turn there if you'd like. The verses will be on the screen as well. Where God speaks very clearly to him. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. And Jonah, he just isn't feeling it, man. That sounds like a lot of conflict waiting to happen. He didn't particularly care for the Ninevites. Uh, this was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They were known for their violence and wickedness. And Jonah really had grown up his whole life hating them. This was the last place he wanted to be sent by God. And though people like Jonah and myself can be very quietly stubborn, I don't know that it was pure stubbornness that had Jonah immediately board a ship headed in the opposite direction. We'll find out later in this story it was anger at the sheer wideness of God's mercy that made Jonah run. He knew of God's compassion and he knew full well that God was essentially pulling up a seat at the table for these people by sending Jonah to them. So Jonah runs from God. He boards a ship to Tarshish. But as the ship was sailing along, suddenly the Lord flung a powerful wind over the sea causing a violent storm that threatened to send them to the bottom. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. And all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. 
So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will have mercy on us and spare our lives. In stark contrast with the crew's concern, Jonah's reaction to this storm is amazing. He goes below deck and he takes a nap. Confession, I could take a nap every single day. I plan on taking a nap today. I took one yesterday. Maybe I'll take one tomorrow. I don't know. It's Monday, probably. I can get so immediately overcome with sleepiness just in a moment's notice. Hard things make me tired. It's a mental tiredness from the stress that I carry about just wanting the boat to not get rocked. And if there's no stopping it and the boat is going to get tossed around, well, then I will just go to sleep. It's my form of apathy, one of my own messed up ways of just running from the things I don't want to face. And I speculate that's what Jonah was doing here. He's apathetic to the danger, and ironically, a pagan ship captain is the one calling this man of God to prayer. The men were scared for their lives while God's servant slept. What an object lesson to God's people then and now to awaken from apathy as hurting people perish on the rocky sea of life around us. The crew casts lots, which was a way to make decisions back then, basically, to see which one of them caused this storm, and Jonah lost. So they drill him with questions. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? And here Jonah shows that side of who he is that I can so relate to. Though rebellion against the initial request from God was his first response, at the flip of a switch or a really rocky boat, Jonah responds to the sailors' questions directly and submissively. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah knows he's busted, and he tells the crew they should just throw him into the sea, and so they do. And most readers of this part of the story may want to hail Jonah as a hero, sacrificing himself for others and their best interests. He's so selfless. But if you're anything like me, you see straight through that, and you can relate to what I imagine were Jonah's true motives. Just make the rocking of the boat stop anything for peace and calm. You know what? Throw me into the sea. Then I won't have to face the conflict on this boat with the crew. I'm dealing with all this guilt from my rebellion, and the bottom of the sea is actually looking pretty good to me right now. I'm actually very selfish, and no one would bother me down there. When people like Jonah are healthy, they can create peace. Jonah's can be great listeners, great mediators, helping others to see the opposing view and diffuse tension. But when we are unhealthy, sadly, the state that we'll see Jonah in throughout most of his story, our motivation is really more about what we want to avoid than what we want to create. 
Jonah is just more interested in avoiding the conflict than creating the peace. I get like that sometimes. I feel like I've got enough conflict going on inside of me. I just can't tolerate it around me. But I've learned that avoiding the conflict around me to keep the peace, it just starts a war within myself. Jonah learned that too, as I'm sure he waged quite the war within himself as he was swallowed up by a big fish and preserved there by God for three days. Time alone does wonders for people like Jonah and me. Though I have never been swallowed up by a big fish, I have certainly felt like I have been. In the belly of that whale, Jonah begins to re-engage with God. And this is the messages version of what he says. I found it very intriguing. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves, and death was near. The waters closed in around me, and I sank down to the very roots of the mountains, locked out of life and imprisoned in the land of the dead. Jonah's stubborn side is quieted, and his ability to see how things fit together is sparked. He begins to praise God for sparing him, and God orders the fish to spit Jonah up on the beach. God speaks to Jonah a second time, telling him to go to Nineveh and deliver the message he had given him. And I wonder what on earth was going through his head as he journeyed to Nineveh, having just been spat up onto the beach by a whale. The Bible tells us Nineveh was a city so large that it took three days to see it all, which must have been just enough time for Jonah to be reminded of his true feelings for these people in this city. Because by the time Jonah actually delivers his message, he has lost all empathy for them. He literally shouts into the crowds of people, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's it. That's the effort he puts out there. The shortest, most judgmental and hopeless sermon ever. <laughs> In Jonah's heart, he believes these people need to be judged, not saved. Jonah spent some time in the fish working through his rebellious spirit, but he's not worked through his judgmental spirit. He's yet to give God access to all of what's in his heart. If he's not literally asleep in the bottom of the ship, he is figuratively asleep to himself and God's prompting. We all do that. Sometimes because we are well aware of that corner of our hearts and we just don't want God touching it. We're not ready to give it up yet. We're not ready to agree to pull the seat up at the table for that person. But sometimes something that I think is even sadder takes place, and that is our inability to let God have his way with that part of us because we may be completely unaware of it. That's why at Pulpit Rock we think that tools for developing self-awareness are so important for us to talk about. A lack of self-awareness is a thing we all face, not just Jonah. Whoever you relate to at this table, a lack of self-awareness is your downfall. Developing self-awareness helps us see how we can more fully reflect the image of God as a person submitting our whole selves to his transforming power. Only when we let him make us whole 
Can we bear his full image and share his complete gospel? Jonah has a a lack of self-awareness here. He's filled to the brim with judgment, condemnation. That's the only half of the gospel he delivers in his message to Nineveh. He completely leaves out God's unending love and mercy, which is actually what leads us to repentance in the first place. But God is God, and even with this half-hearted message, the biggest revival in history up to this point breaks out. The people respond, the king responds, and when God saw that they had put a stop to their evil ways, he had mercy on them and didn't carry out the destruction he had threatened. God moves among these people, and the actual messenger, Jonah, he's devastated. He can't handle the fact that God's love is this deep and wide, and that these people get to sit at God's table next to him. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. There's that bear. People like Jonah and me have a lot of anger. We're kind of unaware of it until it just explodes out of us. And in arguments with God or with people around us, even if we win the argument, we still feel like we've lost because peace has been compromised. What I do is relive the whole thing in my mind over and over and probably come to the conclusion once again, I should have just never said anything to begin with. So while this little outburst of Jonah's seems very immature and selfish, it's a step in the right direction that he names his feelings and he directly communicates them to God. God's big enough to handle what we can dish out at him. But I'm sure Jonah regrets being open and honest. The Bible tells us he goes outside the city and he basically plops down to pout. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased some of his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. The very love and compassion that Jonah refused to give the people of Nineveh is given to him by God, as God tenderly ministers to Jonah. But God also gently teaches him a lesson But God also prepared a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it soon died and withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God sent a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. And a plant is only at best short-lived. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? 
And that's the last line of the book of Jonah, a beautiful question posed by God meant to foster empathy. Jonah is a cautionary tale. It focuses mostly on Jonah's faults, which are in stark contrast to the deep care and concern that God has for all his people. The book of Jonah was a reminder to Israel of her missionary purpose and a caution against indifference or judgment towards others. As Jonah wrote the book from a repentant heart, God wanted the nation to heed the lesson that Jonah had learned and repent as both Jonah and Nineveh had done. While it's clear that at this point in his life, Jonah had a lot of emotional work to do, there are so many good things about people like Jonah. If Jonah is at your table, and he is, this is what you may notice. If we are unhealthy or unaware or stressed, we can be very fearful and indecisive. Choices are overwhelming to us, and from our unhealthy perspective, really only provide a potential point of disconnection, because what if we choose something that you disagree with? In stress, you'll notice someone like Jonah withdraw inward, check out, pull away, maybe even get up from the table. Sadly, this only motivates the disconnection with others that we are so deeply fearful of. Our biggest fear is disconnection, and our besetting sin is laziness. It's not so much a physical laziness, it's more like a lack of focused energy. Focus is an important word for people like us. If we're not, if we're not aware, we can spend our whole lives trying to find our focus, uh, usually by taking the path of least resistance, or just by taking on the focus of the people around us, because that's easier. We're not super initiating. We need help lighting that fire within us and keeping it lit. That's why we're often connected with an institution, a structure, a community. I've seen this in myself my entire life, going all the way back to like when I was a teenager, when I've been a part of something bigger than myself, a part of a team in competitive athletics in high school and college, that fire was lit and it stayed lit and I rose to the occasion became a strong leader among my peers. I see that's true of me here in this community of faith. But toss me out on my own. Ask me to initiate something, be an entrepreneur, see it through flying solo, and I probably just float around and not really know what to do. I think that's why we see Jonah having such a hard time. He's on his own. His focus and priorities, they just get tossed around like his boat on the sea did. Community and encouragement from others are like an anchor for us. People like Jonah and me do have a lot of anger, but we'd probably be the last ones to describe ourselves as angry. Others will see it bubble over in certain moments, but we're usually blind to it. It takes a long time for it to build up enough inside of us for us to notice usually because we're just stuffing it down. And it's usually building because we don't advocate for ourselves like we should. We avoid that conflict around us, just creating that war inside of us. If we are asleep at the wheel, which is a classic characteristic of people like us, you'll notice what comes across as apathy. We're not really aware of what we're feeling, or we're not really trying to be aware. Ironically, though, we are keenly aware 
of what others are feeling. Even if those around us aren't verbally telling us what's going on inside of them, we have this ability to read and understand others well beyond the ability to understand our own selves. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, you may know that type nines are the only types who easily access every other type. So it's not uncommon for a nine to identify more with literally every single other type than their own. For months, I did this. I genuinely thought I was whatever type, whoever the person was I was talking to was. Like, they're talking about being a seven, being like Peter. I'm like, that's so me. Tell me more. Yes, I can relate. Or Martha. I'm like, that's who I am. I'm Martha. Or, P or Paul. I'm Paul. I see how I'm Paul. I just, we can see through others' eyes so much easier than our own. We lose ourselves. We can immediately understand where you're coming from. And we have more empathy than we know what to do with. And this makes us really good friends. Servant leadership comes very naturally, and that makes us good leaders. The heart of our gift is making peace, harmonizing. It's our stubbornness to just refuse to be bothered by conflict. It's too much. A friend of mine who is also a Jonah said, we genuinely seek the shalom of the table. I think that's true. In health, we can be intuitive and discerning, easygoing and really adaptable. We're trustworthy, we go with the flow. We are the people saying, can't we all just get along? We're supportive and even in stress, I've felt this my whole life, this general sense that everything is gonna work out okay. If you know someone like Jonah, this is what you can do for them. Encourage them to advocate for themselves. Don't let them just merge with those around them all the time. Whether you're asking them, where do you want to eat lunch? Or you're asking them a much more serious question. Gently push them to choose for themselves. This is funny. Uh, we've been working on this series for like four or five months now. And it must have been four or five months ago. Jonathan and Cindy and I uh, met for lunch to talk about the planning of this series. And we went to Mod Pizza. I, another confession, could eat there every day. I love Mod Pizza. If you've been there before, you'll know they ask you your name. They write it on your little paper that's on your tray. So we all sat down to eat lunch, and one of them pointed out, oh, they spelled your name wrong, pointing out the uh, S-U-S-I-E spelling of what I spell S-U-Z-Y. My parents are laughing over there. My name is Susanna. I go by Susie. It's a nickname. I just... So S-U-Z-Y is how I spell it. I say, yeah, it's funny, you guys, that we're here to talk about this series, and I just did the ninest thing I've ever done in my life. When the guy asked me what your name is, I said, Susie, and he said, S-U-S-I-E. I said, however you want to spell it, man, it's fine. <laughs> Encourage those Jonas to advocate for themselves. I should have been, it's Susie, S-U-Z-Y, and that matters. Oh. <laughs> What do Jonas need to do for ourselves? Jonas, do the hard work of that long journey inward. Find yourself and then watch and observe yourself. How are you asleep in your heart and mind? Where are you apathetic? Lean into the ways that you can grow in finding your voice and using it. Don't feel bad about your tendency to shirk away from conflict. Use your empathy and ability to see all points of view to help resolve it. You'll feel yourself come alive when you can counsel and encourage others with the whole gospel. 
Look for ways to use this gift. Practice spiritual disciplines like prayer and scripture reading. Jonas can be very distracted and easily waste their time with trivial things that don't matter. It's our form of procrastination. Find a focus. Take action. Make a plan and stick to it. As someone who can really relate to Jonah's struggles that we see in this story, I'd love to share what has helped me. I've learned that I need someone else to process with. I'm good at making others feel seen and hearing others out. I need to be with people who will see me, let me speak, and then speak into my life. I have friends who do this for me, but I also know that I'm someone who needs to actively press into all types of community. It's just too easy for me to withdraw. Therapy has done wonders for me, and I never feel guilty about taking the conversation for myself the whole time because I'm paying my therapist to listen, so it works out. Yes. <laughs> Here's a good Bible verse for people like me and like Jonah. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. No prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth, and to tell it in love, like Christ in everything. The temptation for Jonah's is to check out, leaving the more difficult half of their heart to deal with untouched by themselves, by others, definitely by God. In this state, it is impossible to know the whole truth. And it is impossible to mature and grow into the more holistic version of ourselves. And in our immaturity, we may just get up from the table and leave. And that's childish. We saw this in Jonah. And it crippled his God-given ability of great empathy. Jonah was asleep in the hold of the ship when the sea got rocky. And he was asleep to himself figuratively when the hard work of giving his whole heart over to God's transforming love and acceptance was too much. So when God asked him to sit at the table with people different than him, he was incapable of empathy. And this isn't just true of Jonah. This is true of all of us. And it's true of every person now seated at our table if they could each embrace the whole truth of the complete gospel of Jesus, this is what they'd hear. Jacob, your successes don't give you your value. You're valued because of who you are. Paul, you may feel like you could never be righteous enough, but just like you said yourself, God's grace is sufficient for you. Joseph, even though you can feel insignificant or misunderstood, you are seen for who you are. Deborah, vulnerability is scary, but it is your strength. Martha, you can be so busy thinking about others, but you are loved no matter how much or how little you do for the people around you. Nicodemus, faith often doesn't make logical sense. So follow Jesus with your heart. Rebecca, it can be scary to trust, but you are secure in God's hands. Peter, don't run from painful experiences. God will take care of you. And Jonah, 
You may not think you're up to the task, but your voice at the table matters. And no matter what the lie is that you may be believing, the truth is that you have a place at this table. Until we allow the whole truth of God's love and acceptance of us transform us, we cannot reflect the whole gospel to others. We are only partial image bearers portraying a half-hearted message. Because until we've let God search us and know us, and let him lead us to search and know ourselves, we are only half of who we are meant to be. Until we've worked through that process, our identity is truly not in him. And you guys know this. When our identity is not in him, we find it in literally anything else. It's in our work, it's in our success, in our opinions, in others' acceptance, in others' praise. And at that point, we just jockey back and forth, always either in or out, being tossed around by this constantly moving target. That's a rocky sea. We're off balance, we're insecure, and those around us become competitors for position, a threat. And before we know it, we're mentally casting lots to see which one of these people needs to be thrown overboard or uninvited from the table. Because of Jesus' wide grace and mercy, this table of his is set for us in very deep waters. And we are all invited to dive in. An invitation to get caught up in the current of his acceptance of us. A risky venture because he loves us too much to let us just stay the way we are. He wants to transform us alongside each other in community. That we'll never make it unless we sit down and let God have his way with our whole heart. And then pull up a chair beside us and invite someone else who is imperfect and incomplete just like us to do the same. The longest journey is the journey inward. Let's follow Jesus there. We want to close this morning and this series at the table with communion. So the table is open and when you're ready, come get the elements. And then before you take them, I invite you to just begin a conversation with Jesus. Ask him what your next step is in following him on this journey. Before we do that, I'd love to pray for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the grace and mercy that you provide us. Thank you for setting this table for us, a place where true transformation can take place inside our hearts. Help us to make room for others the way that you do. Even if we don't understand the journey that they are on, help us to trust that you are working, that we are all incomplete and in progress, and that we don't need to be afraid of each other. Help us to lean in and hold tight to each other so that no one gets tossed out into the rocky sea. Your table is a place of refuge and redemption. Would you lead us there now?